0: we've grown accustomed to airbrushed pictures of models where every blemish and every stray hair is removed and you just have this perfect pictured result. And this has resulted in a very distorted view of beauty and really what can be attained as far as beauty is concerned. In a similar fashion, we have grown accustomed to some airbrushed pictures of Christianity, in which people's lives are carefully touched up so that there are removed any flaws or spiritual blemishes or warts, what are more commonly known as sin. This also has resulted in a distorted view, but this time a distorted view of the Christian life, what we can actually expect and achieve in our own Christian experience. In the passage that's before us today, we have Paul speaking with tremendous candor, honesty, and vulnerability, sharing his own personal struggle against sin. And as we look at this passage, the very first question we must ask is that, is Paul's struggle against sin that he is describing, a struggle before his salvation or a struggle as a saved individual. There are two very distinct and quite opposite approaches to these verses. One school of thought says that these verses describe Paul's condition before he was saved. The other school of thought says that these verses describe Paul's condition after he was saved. The conclusion that one reaches in that decision is not purely academic. Uh, It's a vital discussion and question for it really is going to provide for us a basis of what we think the Christian life is about, what it looks like, what experience we have with sin. There are some people that teach that you're able to achieve uh, a spiritual perfection in this life. That there is a possibility to live your life totally absent from sin. There are other groups that would teach that you need some kind of special work of grace. Or there is a, a second work of sanctifying grace in the life of a believer that can move them to a higher plane. That can move them to a higher plateau that they don't have the Struggle against sin that they once had in their infancy in their relationship to Christ. The other view is that this is the testimony of a mature child of God, a dedicated Christian who has this ongoing struggle with sin. And it provides for us a normative example of how we can view sin in our own life and what we can expect God to do with respect to that that sinfulness. Down through the ages, it's been the, pretty much the Reformed position, Augustine and Luther and Calvin, uh, among others, that, that this refers to a situation in which a person is saved and that they are in a uh, battle against sin in their regenerate position. Uh, The Arminian position tends to to say this is a person before that they are saved. Um, Timothy Keller, in his book on Romans, and there's just so many commentaries on Romans, but I thought as I read the various works that he did the best job of summing up these two different positions. So I'm going to read at great length uh, a quote from uh, Timothy Keller. He says, and I quote, In the rest of chapter 7, Paul talks of his experience of struggling with sin. Is he talking about himself as an unbeliever or as a believer? This is a difficult question and plenty of thoughtful people have been on both sides of this issue. Some believe that a believer would not talk as Paul does when he says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Verse 14. He also virtually confesses that he has sins regularly, even compulsively. What I want to do I do not, but what I hate I do. Verse 15, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Verse 18, therefore, over the ages, many people have concluded that Paul is talking of himself as he was before conversion. I want to make the case that Paul is talking of his own present experience, his Christian life. The evidence, there is a change in verb tenses. The verbs of verses 7 through 13 are in the past tense. But from verse 14 on, all these tenses are present. A natural reading would tell us Paul is speaking of his own now. End quote. Just a point here. I think that that is an extremely important note. Uh, As we think of all the theological arguments, uh, we need to always start with the text and ask ourselves specifically, what clearly does the word of God say? And as you read through, there is a very distinct demarcation at verse 13 where everything prior to that is all in the past tense, as Paul talks about how the law was useful in bringing him under conviction. But once we hit verse 14, all the verbs change the present tense, which would speak of Paul's present condition. I think that is a very strong uh, inkling From the text, that this is talking about Paul and his converted state. Back to the quote. There is a change in situation. Verses 7 through 13 talk about sin killing him. He's dead. But from verse 14 on, Paul describes an ongoing struggle with sin in which he struggles but refuses to surrender. Paul delights in God's law. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. Verse 22, even though sin is nevertheless at work within him. Unbelievers cannot delight in God's law. In their heart of hearts, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. This categorically denies any unbeliever can delight in God's law. So is a strong argument that 722 can't be the words of an unbeliever. And I will end the quote there, although there's much more. So we are going to be approaching this portion of Scripture as Paul's testimony as a regenerate individual, as a person who is born again, of what his personal struggle is with sin. Understanding that this then is normative. This is how we are to understand our own Christian experience, our own relationship to sin. So the theme is the believer's battle against sin. First, Paul's relationship sin is described Paul though converted is still very much a sinner so Paul's relationship described Paul though a though converted is still very much a sinner verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual but I am the flesh sold under sin Paul recognizes his spiritual weakness he is a mere human. Uh, the law is spiritual, it comes from God, whereas he himself is of the earth, he is, he is fleshly, he is limited. The next description of the believer's condition is one of being sold under sin. For we know the law is spiritual by him of flesh sold under sin. And one might question, as some do, how in the world can you characterize a person who is born again as being sold under sin? Well, it's important to realize it does not state that he sold himself to sin, as it states of Ahab in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 20, it says, And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Paul does not say that he sold himself. This is in the passive. He says that he was sold into sin. He's talking about a condition that he did not bring about upon himself, but rather that was thrust upon him. He's talking about his sinful nature. He's talking about this inherited sin problem that he got from Adam. that's described in Romans chapter five. And Paul recognizes, though converted, he still has a sinful nature. Though converted, there is still this this Adamic issue that we all face, all right? Even though we have been born again, there is this, as I say, sinful nature that we have inherited from from Adam, and we'll talk more about that as we work through this passage, and it will become more clear. So when we're talking about this situation, Paul is recognizing this uh, sinful nature that is present within him. So now Paul expresses his, his struggle against sin. Paul's struggle against sin expressed, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but do the very thing that I hate. Paul speaks of how he just does not get why it is that he does what he does. He says, I don't understand it. The scriptures teach that there is a a mystery to iniquity. In a very real sense, sometimes it's hard for us to explain our own actions, to explain our own attitudes. Have, have you ever found yourself asking the question, why do I feel this way? Uh, you may be down, you, you may be depressed, you, you may be miserable, and you're asking yourself, why, why, why am I feeling this way? All right. Why do I do some of the things that, that I do? You shake your head at yourself, And you wonder, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so dumb? Why would I ever do that? So so Paul is is, is wrestling with this question. I don't understand. Why is it that I do the things that, that I do? Paul finds himself repeatedly doing the very things that he abhors. Verse 15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. So instead of doing what he wants to do, or purposes to do, he finds himself doing the exact opposite, even though he says that I hate that thing, and I hate myself for doing it. Perhaps it can be helpful by looking at an example. David provides a wonderful example of this truth in Psalm 39, when David gives his own testimony. And just listen as I read. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so as long as the wicked were in my presence. I was mute, silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So David says, you know, I made this resolve. I, I made this commitment that I wasn't going to say a word. In fact, I wasn't even going to speak good, let alone speak evil. Because if I didn't say anything, then I'd be preserved. All right? So he put this muzzle on his mouth, as it were. All right? This self-imposed regulation resolve: I'm not going to say a word. And then I was in the presence of the wicked. Then... I heard all this talk around me. Then my heart burned. Then all of a sudden I spoke. Then all of a sudden I did the very thing that I said I wasn't going to do. I believe we can all relate to those circumstances. I think we've all been in situations when we have said to ourselves, I'm not going to say a word. I'm not going to address this issue. I'm going to be calm. And then all of a sudden... You're in that situation and the conversation goes and you find yourself saying the very thing that you didn't want to say. You find yourself doing the very thing that you didn't want to do. That is part of the normative Christian experience. This struggle that goes on. So Paul struggles is elaborated. Paul's struggle against sin, in one sense, is a good thing. The struggle against sin is an acknowledgement that the holy and right way to live is correct. Notice verse 16. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that is good. So Paul says that I have come to accept and agree that the law is good. I have come to realize that the law is the proper way to live. Uh, We should follow God's commandments, uh, that we should be committed to doing what the word of God teaches us to do. He says, I agree with that. I acknowledge that. I, I accept that. And that's a good thing. It's good that he thinks that obeying the law is right and further that To do good is in fact a good desire. Paul goes on to say that his struggle against sin is not a product of the new nature, but the old. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, now there's a change. He says, no longer it is I who is doing it, now sin is doing it. We should not understand in these words a true and complete dichotomy. This is not Paul dismissing all responsibility for his actions. Uh, He's not simply saying that he's been totally overpowered or overcome. But it is a way of speaking of the powerful influence that sin sin still had in in his life and in ours. Paul is saying that when I sin, that is not who I really am. This is not what I'm about. This sinfulness shouldn't define me. That's not how I should view myself or others should view me. He says, it's no longer I who do it, but now it's sin that is doing it. We'll unpack that. He's going to address that again. Paul knows that apart from the work of God in his life, there is not a shred of goodness found in him. Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. It is not within Paul's or the believer's sinful nature to do good. It is speaking of Paul's powerlessness and his own strength to overcome sin. The problem with mankind is that because of Adam's sin, mankind is not basically good. Mankind is basically sinful. Mankind is basically evil. And Paul recognizes within himself that sinful tendency still exists. Paul truly does desire to live a holy life. Verse 18, for I know then nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right. So there is this sincere desire, a a goal, an ambition to live a godly life. That's what he wants to do. I have that that sincere desire. But he finds himself powerlessly. Excuse excuse me. He finds himself powerless to do so on a consistent basis. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do right. Now, these words, but not the ability to carry it out. He makes resolves, he makes commitments, he makes. Dedicatory statements, but he doesn't consistently see them through. All too often, he falls short. He's not able to do what he wants to do. This is akin to the example that is given to us in the person of Peter Peter is told by the Lord Jesus Christ that Peter is going to deny the Lord three times at the crucifixion. Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. Peter was saying, I will not. I am not going to deny you. I am going to live for you. I'm going to identify with you. I will not deny you. Jesus' answer to Peter is, the Spirit is willing the flesh is weak. Jesus acknowledged the truthfulness of Peter's desire. When Peter said, I will not deny you, he was being sincere. He was expressing the attitude of his heart. He wanted to be faithful to God. He wanted to, to stand with Christ. He was willing to cut off Malchus's ear. Peter says, that's not me. I'm going to stand firm. Jesus says, Peter, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You don't have. The inner strength. You don't have that moral resolve. You don't have that strength that you need in order to withstand the temptation that you are going to experience. And so he tells Peter, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. Of course, we all know that that Peter does indeed fall and fail. Now, the struggle against sin is repeated and expressed more fully in verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Which sounds very familiar to what he just said in verse 15. Look at verse 15. For I do not understand my own initiative, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. He says the very same thing over again in verse 19. I believe that we have these words repeated to give us a sense of this ongoing struggle against sin of sin that we commit, we confess, we repent of, only to find ourselves again committing, confessing, repenting of, to later commit, confess, and to repent of. So now we have Paul's struggle against sin explained. All right? That was his struggle expressed. Here it is explained. Paul has discovered an underlying truth. Now he's going to give us the understanding. He says, I don't understand. So now he helps us understand. Verse 21. Paul has discovered an underlying truth in his Christian experience. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law. That's an interesting Use of the word law. Paul uses the word law here to denote a principle. I find this law or principle at work. In this sense, a law is an irrefutable fact, like the laws of nature, regarding how the human nature works. Paul says, I'm finding a given, a norm, a spiritual reality. All right? I, I'm finding a truth expressed. A spiritual norm that is when I want to do right evil lies close at hand in my best of moments I'm not far from the sinful person and my sinful nature at my very best times I'm not that distant from my sin and my corruption. It's always lurking in my background. It's always hiding just behind my shoulder, waiting to grab me, waiting to seduce me, waiting to overcome me, waiting to overthrow those commitments and those expressions and those desires that I have. The truth is that lurking behind the desire to do good, the evil desire is not far away. Paul says on the one hand, at the deepest level of his soul, Paul really wants to do good and right and what is holy. Notice verse 22. For I delight in the law of God. I take pleasure in God's word. Sounds like the psalmist, Psalm 32. Blessed is he. Psalm 1, that I just can't quote now. Uh, oh, like his, uh, yes, his delight is in the law, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Uh, Paul's delight is in the word of God. He, he delights in the law of God, and he says so in his innermost being. In my inner being. Paul says that in my inner being. He rejoices in the law. That is like saying in my heart of hearts. Or in my true self. Some translations render it. My innermost self. That is why Paul said in verse 17. So that is why. It is no longer I who do it. But the sin that dwells in me. Paul is saying deep down inside if you could see into my innermost recess, if you could get to the bottom of my heart, there really is a desire to live for God. That's not feigned. That's not put on. That's not hypocritical. That's real. That's real. And on the other hand, Paul finds himself committing sin, verse 23. I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There is this, this battle going on, there's this, this struggle within himself. So that there's, there's truly a, a battle, that there is a struggle against sin, verse 23. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. Paul finds this battle to be taking place in his life on two different fronts. First, Paul finds the battle to be between his emotional or physical desires in what he feels like doing. Verse 23 But I see in my members another law waging war. When he's talking about his members, uh, he's talking about his physical being. He's talking about his emotional and physical desires. All right? So on the one level, there are those things that, that he wants to do emotionally. All right? So he hears something and it makes him angry. Emotional response. And maybe in that emotional response, he wants to hit somebody, but he knows he shouldn't hit that person. And so now it's gonna create a struggle between what he feels like doing and what he knows that he should do, but he also really wants to do what he knows is the right thing to do. There really is a desire to not hit that person, while at the same time, (laughs) there is a desire to hit that person. And he says, there's a war raging within me. There, there's a conflict. I feel conflicted. Can you relate to that? That confliction of knowing what is the right thing to do and wanting to do the right thing and at the same time, not wanting to do that right thing. And not wanting to submit to God and to his authority. Fighting against that that, uh, emotional and physical realm is the intellectual understanding of what is right and wrong, what he knows he should be doing, and thus his commitment to God, verse 23. But I see my members, another law, waging war, and now here's the other side, against the law of my mind. That inner, deep-seated commitment to God, that choice that is made to follow God. All too often, the emotional and physical desires went out, end of verse 23, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. All too often, I find myself following my emotions rather than following my will and knowing what is right and I should do. So now we have Paul's struggle against sin exclaimed. Verse 24. Paul views himself as frustrated by his sinfulness. Wretched man that I am. Some commentators say, How can a believer refer to themselves as a wretch? To be wretched is to be miserable, to be distressed. Paul is, in fact, miserable. He is. He is distressed as he thinks about his sinful condition. Now we also need to understand that this is a picture in time, all right? We also have Romans chapter eight coming up. We, we also understand that, that there's a lot going on in Paul's life that's extremely positive. We know the, of, of his service, we know of his, his commitment, we know of his willingness to, to die for his faith, all right? So what is present here is this struggle Yes, there is so much that is commendable in the life of Paul and to some to such a degree that's almost unthinkable that Paul would have these inner struggles with sin. But the reality is that even the most godly individuals in this life still are going to have this this struggle against sin. And it is that person who views themselves as wretched, the unbeliever, Isn't distressed and miserable because of their sin. They're content, they're happy. and they see nothing wrong in what they are doing. It's the believer who sits there and sometimes wise themselves to sleep because of what they have said or done that has grieved their child or their spouse. who gets just totally frustrated with themselves. It says, how could I? Why did I? I know better. I really didn't want to. But I did. I really am wicked this heart of mine really is full of sin Paul is looking for deliverance he wants so badly to be a different kind of person than what he is verse 24 wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? He's wanting to be delivered from that struggle. He wants to be freed from that emotional and physical impulse that leads against what his mind and spirit is telling him to do. He's looking for this ultimate and final deliverance. The body which results in death or the body which in fact will die. Again, it is said, can a believer actually need to be delivered from this body of death? And now we have what I think is, is, the, is the nail in the coffin to, 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 to that Position of this is an unregenerate person because the text answers this question for us without a shadow of a doubt. Turn with me to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start at verse 18 to give you the context. Romans 8, 18. For I consider... That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Even creation groans and wants deliverance that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, now here's the key, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who have the Spirit of God at work within us, we who have this beginning of this wonderful transformation taking place, groan inwardly. Oh, I'm wretched. Oh, I'm miserable. When will I be delivered as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies? Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? We await the redemption of our bodies. We await that glorious resurrection. We await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we are, we are reunited body and soul, the struggle with sin will be over. That's Romans chapter 8 going on. Those whom he called to be justified, those whom he justified, those also he glorified. We're going to get to all this, but right now, Paul's saying, I'm in this battle. So let's look at Paul's conclusion about his struggle against sin. It might surprise you. Notice verse 25. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thanking God for this struggle. He's thanking God for the condition that he's in. He's thanking God in the moment, which is another nail in the coffin. Nobody's going to be thanking God for their unregenerate state. He's thanking God in this regenerate state. And notice what he's thanking God for. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Oh, with my flesh I serve the law of sin. While he's serving in his flesh the law of sin, he's saying, I thank you, God. I thank you. Why would Paul thank God while he is still serving this law of flesh? Why is Paul thanking God while he's in the midst of this struggle. And we could easily jump to, well, he's thanking God because he's justified, he's thanking God because he's forgiven, he's thanking God for all these things, but if you stick with the text, and if you stick with what's right here, what he is thanking God for is that he's serving the law of God with his mind. He's thanking God for the transformation that has taken place within his innermost being that now he actually does love God and he actually does want to serve God the mind in romans is extremely important if you go back with me to romans chapter 1 and we're going to read a good part of this passage As Paul is talking about the need for righteousness. Starting at Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Alright, here's the mind. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, there's the mind again, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Here's the struggle. The emotions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to retain God, here's the key, God gave them up to a debased mind. Prior to salvation, we had a debased mind. We did not view or look at things the way that we should view or look at things. Especially the law of God. We didn't want to obey it. We didn't think it was good. Let's read on, verse twenty-nine. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse thirty-two. Though they know God's righteous decree. Though they know God's law, though they know what God says, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Not only did we do sinful things, but we said, there's nothing wrong with it. It's okay. Who are you to tell me how to live? Why should I listen through the law of God, or like Pharaoh, who is God that he should tell me what to do? Before we were saved, our mind was pitted against God and his law. But Paul says in verse 25 of Romans seven, thanks be to God, Through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Praise God that He has done this work of transformation within me that I really do want to serve Him and live for Him. That's His grace, that's His mercy. And I tell you already, that is a huge step in our sanctification. That is an incredible difference. Where now we admit and say, yes, it's true, I'm a sinner. And we don't have to make excuse for ourselves. The very fact that we're convicted, the very fact that we're willing to own our sinfulness is such a leap forward. When before we didn't want to deny, we didn't want to accept. We didn't want to acknowledge the need of a savior or a deliverer. But now we have. And we're willing to admit, yes, I'm a sinner. What grace of God. He's already changed our hearts and minds. It's important to understand the tension that exists between our minds on the one hand and our emotional and physical responses on the other. The mind is going to become central in in chapters eight and following. And it's going to culminate... In Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By this constant rehearsal and refreshment in your own heart and mind that says, I need to stay committed to Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As we give ourselves to the word of God, the word of God keeps convicting us, keeps teaching us, keeps reinforcing for us that this is the right way to live. This is the way that I need to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what I want to do, even though there are times that I don't. So I need to feed that spiritual transformation of my mind. And I need to fear my emotional and physical responses. And here is where we are so different from the world. The world makes its decisions based on if it feels right, do it. Follow your gut. Be true to yourself. Whatever you feel like, do. No, there are so many times that we have to act contrary to the way that we feel. We have to act contrary to the way that our gut initially tells us to respond. And we have to say, no, that's not right. That's not what I should do. That's not how I'm going to live. Thanks be to God that he has taught me that truth. We're going to get into this later, but let me just put it in here in minute thought. And that is we never can lose sight of our sinful nature. When my kids were little, younger, not real little, they were teens, and they would want to do certain things or go certain places, and I would say, no, you can't. And they used to come back with what they thought was the zinger that would put me in my place. They would say, don't you trust me. And I'd say, not a chance. I don't trust you. I said, I don't trust myself. We're not as strong as we think we are. But him that thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall. Brothers and sisters, there's no sin that we're not capable of committing. We don't come so spiritual that temptation and desires are, are just totally foreign or alien to us. Don't put yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be tempted. Or when we get later into the Romans where you put yourself purposefully in a place of temptation. That you make opportunity for sin to exist and to exercise the sinful desires of our heart. The scripture's admonition is not, learn to be so strong. The scripture's admonition is consistent. Flee temptation. Flee situations. Brothers and sisters, we need to own our sinfulness. Not in a way in which we just sit and cower every moment. We're forgiven. We enjoy peace with God. We are accepted before him, and our sin will be remembered no more. And now, by the grace of God, we want to live for him. But if we're honest, time and time and time again, we fall short. And we're committing the same sins over and over and over again. And it would be wonderful if I could just end this service and call you to come forward and for you to make a commitment that will last now and forevermore that you're not going to commit this sin anymore. But I know that it's impossible to do that. That's unreal. Though you today say, I am going to live a different life, and we should, and we want to, and we need to make those commitments. And At the same time, know that that struggle isn't just going to go away. It just isn't going to cease. It's there. It's there. But thank God. Thank God that there's the struggle. Thank God that there's the desire to live righteously. Thank God that he's changed our minds and attitudes towards our sin. Thank God for this grace. And then Romans 8 is having recognized our inability, how desperately we need the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives to empower us. That's Romans 8. There's good news there's strength it's beyond ourselves. We need to cultivate our relationship to the Holy Spirit. That's chapter 8. That's coming up. But today, today, thank God. Thank God for the struggle. For this desire that He's placed within you to live for Him. And now, by His grace, as we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, We can live more consistently. We can grow in grace and knowledge. We can grow in our holiness. We can grow in our consistency. But we'll never attain perfection on this side of heaven. And so we groan and long for that day in which we will stand before him and finally be perfect. For then we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But we're not perfect until then. Let's pray. Our Father, help us in this struggle against sin. Help us, give us a desire for righteousness and holiness. Thank you for the transformation that's taken place, that now sin bothers us, that, that now it does make us miserable, that now we do long and hunger for a different way of life, that we're willing to accept what our sin has done to others and ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for that spiritual progress. Thank you for the opening of our hearts and minds to the gospel truth and the acceptance of our sinfulness. Thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, we pray for your spirit. Help us not, destroy, help us not to, to grieve or quench your spirit's working in our lives. Uh, Lord, help us to, to acknowledge and, and accept our, our weakness. And so, look to you more and more for, for the deliverance from our sin. Not just our resolves, but, but Lord, as we give ourselves to the reading of the word, as, as we allow your, your spirit to impact our hearts and minds, Lord, we just pray. In the weeks to come, you would help us as, as we think about the spirit of God who groans within us with groanings that cannot be uttered, that, that, that intensify this desire to be delivered from our sin. But Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that we enjoy. Thank you for the struggle that we now have and we do long for the day that we're in your presence and we have a new body uh, we we have are united of soul and body to your glory and to your praise for it's in Jesus name we pray amen